Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 975 with Cleophis Heffington. I get very intense when I'm on a line, though. <laughs> it's like playing sports again. Game-winning touchdown, game-winning three. The last 10 meters come before the finish line. Like That's what cooking feels like to me, but it's fun. It's not repetitive. It's, it's not work. Are you ready for it? Factors. Success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode brought to you by Pop Menu. Are you looking to grow your restaurant in 2023? Are you and your team focusing on driving more revenue or connecting with diners more? Maybe you want to increase sales without physically expanding your brick and mortar. If this is all true, then you are looking for Pop Menu. Pop Menu. Technology for restaurants that are ready to grow. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off your first month and learn more about Pop Menu's entire collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. It, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, CDC at Zach the Baker, Cleothis Heffington. Cleothis, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am. I always feel unstoppable when I come to work. Yeah, man. Um, I'm, we've been walking around town. We've been talking to people. Nothing but amazing things that people have been saying about you. Um, just super excited to get your story and to just learn from your perspective. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Um, so I can't actually pronounce it, um, but it's an Ethiopian proverb. Um, it basically states the solution lies in the salt and spices. The solution lies in the salt and spices. How does that translate to you? How do you what What does that speak to you? Um, for me, as you know, as a chef, naturally, like you, like, and I'm someone who loves to cook with spices. So every dish, there's a solution within the spices that um, brings a, a unique flavor to how I cook and you know how how I even teach in my kitchen. Mm. Um, salt is a for me is is in a sense to the to the proverb it's a cure for everything. So it's a balancer. It's um it's a cure for 
you know, just some things as um, soaking your feet. Yeah. You know, um, they tell you to go to the Dead Sea if you, you have certain certain illnesses to to wash away those pains and those illnesses. So, like, you know, for me, salt is, is everything. Like, you can't, you can't cook without salt. You can't live without salt. Like, it, you know, it, it balances... It balances it balances me as as a chef and as a leader and you know just teaching people how to balance yeah hit me with it one more time I want to hear after hearing you reflect on it, I want to hear it one more time a solution lies in salt and spices a solution lies in salt and spices when I hear that I think you know what happens when you're using salt and spices you're cooking right and I feel like there's so much when the, I feel like cooking is a very social, intimate thing. Usually back, especially over time, when we were cooking, it was usually for people. It wasn't just for ourselves. It would be like people coming together for a meal. And I think so. people coming together for a meal also solves a lot of problems, too. Yeah, I, think, I don't absolutely. know. I wonder if there's multiple ways to interpret I mean, you, that. You, I mean, everything is relative. You yeah. know, um, it's, you know, everything's, I mean, just as food is up to interpretation, like I feel like it just depends on how you're digesting it at the point in your life or when the, you know when you're reading it and when you what you're thinking about what you're going through um so me as a chef right now like that's just how i teach that's how i lead um as as a leader of a of a restaurant yeah, man. Of, in the hospitality industry beautiful i love it great way to get this thing started so where does it make sense to start sharing your story because you didn't really have a direct path into hospitality like you didn't know early on maybe you didn't know but maybe you you had second guesses about making a career out of this so when did you know that this was going to be your career um i mean i wanted to do it when i was in high school okay um i started i was in home economics through middle school, through high school. So was it always the goal to, to become a chef? I wouldn't say I, I had that goal. Like, I just knew I love food, and I love watching PBS food shows. Um, the Food Network was just starting to really get ramped up, and that's when, like, the whole celebrity chef thing was really starting to take off. It wasn't as big, obviously, in the 90s as it is now, but... You know, seeing Emeril Lagasse and Wolfgang Puck and, um, you know, all these chefs on TV um, and seeing how they were cooking things that were unique to me, I, I was definitely intrigued by. And it, I enjoyed the artistry and the creativity and the personalities of them all. Mm. So... You know, and my and also my my mom and my grandmother—they're both educators, but they're excellent cooks. So, like on the side, they always had some type of catering hustle going on, outside of being teachers. So I was always around helping out. Yeah, and I just kind of cultivated the little bit of you know energy or creativity that I could put into cooking when I was helping them out. Um, so I see that you went into the Navy. Uh, and I also see that you were in health healthcare for a while. So, like, what was your 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 plan for yourself early? What what did you think you were going to do? What was your trajectory? Well, I thought I was going to be going to college on an athletic scholarship. <laughs> oh, really? What was your sport? Um, I played basketball, I played football, ran track. I mean, I was pretty good at it all. Yeah. Um, but I got I was I wasn't always the best student. 
you know, especially if it wasn't during football or basketball season, I, I was kind of like, that. <laughs> I got bored and was yeah. like, all right, now I don't have to keep my grades up for, <laughs> for yeah. but um, I also got injured and, oh. you know, also, you know, naturally my grades wasn't where they were supposed to be. So, you know, my parents didn't play that. My coaches didn't play that. So it didn't all, it didn't work out that way. Yes. And so I, you know, I, I joined the Navy, one of my best friends, he was going into the Navy. Yeah. So he introduced me to the, to the recruiter back then in our senior year of high school. And, you know, pretty much from there, it was a wrap. You know, um, hindsight being 2020, I think I, sometimes I wish I kind of went into the, the military. Sure. Uh, when I was young, I wanted to be a commercial pilot. Uh, I'm colorblind. So I couldn't go into the military and get my, my um, pilot mm-hmm. license and, and go that route. I was trying to. I was trying to see if there's a way to work around, but they're pretty strict. Uh, but I think that the military is a great foundation for a young person. Did you find that to be true? Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it, you know, something they characterize as military bearing, um, which is understanding, you know, just some things as the insignias that you're supposed to, you know, know of the people you're supposed to, you know, hold in high regard and respect and salute and, um, it, it teaches you chain of command, yeah. uh, which is something that's very important in, in any business structure. Um, Why is it so important? Because it, it doesn't – chain of command, you, you, if you're going to go from the bottom to the straight to the top, then you can never really get something resolved but in the middle. You know, like there's, there's levels that you can, you can go to your immediate supervisor and – work together and build a better rapport, build a a better relationship within your workplace instead of like, oh, I'm just going to go straight to the boss. And then that kind of, you know, negates everything in between. Yeah. And it it creates a different work dynamic because now the immediate supervisor, and especially if that boss is receptive to the negative feedback from an employee, instead of maybe turning them back to their immediate supervisor, it can break the chain of command. Yeah. I mean, people, the, the word hierarchy is kind of yucky. People don't like it. Yeah. It suggests like, you know, separation class and like all this different thing. Uh, but it's, it is important to have that, 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 that chain of communication. Uh, we all have responsibilities. We only handle so many re- re- relationships, right? So by segregating like those, those channels of communication, you help, you make it bearable for everybody to manage the, the scenario. When you have a thousand different people coming at you as a boss, you can't, you can't take care of everybody. That's why we delegate. That's why, you know, we say you're going to take care of this. Uh, and your direct reports are these people, and then I'm going to hear it from you. We can't, we don't have enough attention to take to hear it from everybody, right? What's going through your mind? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, I, I agree with that because delegation is a huge, it's a huge part of being a leader. Yeah, um, and also, like you said, it's just it's almost like compartmentalizing carp, carp, <laughs> each part of your business. Yeah, you know, so it, it, it's it's allowing you all to like, you know, my cooks to communicate with my sous chef, you know, and then the sous chef can communicates with me. Yeah. Um, so it just, it, it creates barrier and structure. Yeah. And I think a cool idea too, is like there is a hierarchy, but if you don't like that idea of people at the top then just flip it, you know, just turn like to invert the hierarchy and the people at the bottom 
are there to serve everybody above them, but there has to be that 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 channel of communication to make it work nicely. Yeah, absolutely. So, what else did you learn in the military? Um, I mean, I can say like the military. Um, it it it, it taught me even more the emphasis on like teamwork. Mm. Um, you know, being accountable. Yeah. Not but, not to just you know yourself, but everyone that's in front of you and in back of you. Yeah, As somebody who came up playing sports you must have had a pretty good idea of teamwork but how did this take it to the next level well i mean i went in two months before 9-11 happened damn um was that scary for you it's terrifying yeah like i thought we're in a time of like peace and now like oh crap it it was it was extremely terrifying um because you saw the world change drastically Mm. Um, night and day just you know just as simple as like you know I'm not sure how you are but like when you just could walk into the airport walk straight to your gate you know just simple things like that when you used to travel that you never now most of us don't even remember those days right um, but I remember the last time I got on a plane which was going to boot camp in Great Lakes Illinois you know we walked straight to our our our, our taxi gate and but um yeah, I mean, it was a terrifying, it was a terrifying experience because you didn't know what was going to happen next. Yeah, you're like, did I make the right choice? Yeah, like, so did I sign up at the wrong time? But it, it, it taught me, like I said, it taught me camaraderie, taught yeah. me teamwork, it taught, it taught me how to be accountable, not just for myself, but for everybody that's with me. Because, you know, I'm sure you hear it in movies, you hear it. How we said all the time, you watch your six or, you know, no one gets left behind. Yeah. How do you teach accountability? That's a good one. For me, I, I, the main way I go about teaching accountability is, for one, in the restaurant, it's just about building, building up the, the, the attitude of that. We're all here to, to work together. Um, there's no my side. There's no your side. There's there's a we and that our goal within this business is to serve and provide great hospitality yeah. no matter what. And we won't meet that goal unless we're all doing our role. Right. Yeah. So that's, if you're just taking a moment to, to go leave, to go leave your station, um, that's telling your fellow cooks on the line, like, Oh, I'm taking two minutes to go get this off the line. Um, because like how I explain it to a lot of my staff, it's it's more those two minutes, five minutes that you're leaving a line is five minutes that it takes longer for us to get that ticket out to it. I mean, that food out to a guest in a, you know, a proper manner. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's, you know, it's holding each other accountable to the standards that, that we set within yeah. the business or within our service structure. And now what was your uh, responsibility in the Navy? I was a hospital corpsman, okay, which is you know equivalent to an LPN in civilian life. Which what does LPN stand for again? It's a licensed practical nurse, I think. Okay, um, so like LPN is like one year short of getting their RN. Okay, but they can essentially do all the same things that a nurse can do. Okay, what was that? The path you chose? Um, I I you know. I enjoyed healthcare. Mm. Like I, I knew very little about it, but back then I know I didn't want to go into the Navy and be a cook. 
but I scored pretty high on my ASVAB and they're like, I was actually, I'm not going to lie. I was thinking, I was like, I'm surprised that you didn't go that route. I kind of assumed when I first saw Navy, I, I kind of made the assumption and then I saw healthcare and I was like, and I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I, I chose Corman just because it sounded and seemed like the most interesting and the most like laid back. It's, I mean, from if I was in your in your position too, I'd think there's so much opportunity after this. If I go into the military, they're gonna I'm gonna get most of what I need to know to set myself up for a career in healthcare. I, I never thought about. Like, oh, I, okay. I was I mean I was 18 and yeah. I was like, we don't hey. see the world like that sometimes. Yeah. We just kind of ride in the roller coaster. I, I I wasn't like once the whole not going to college, playing sports didn't work out. Like it was just I was just freeballing out there just like all right i'm gonna go do this <laughs> it's figuring it out so, right? well we don't have self-awareness when we're 18 years old we don't know what we're i mean we have an idea you knew you were a good athlete you know but i think you you know what you're good at by doing things in the universe telling you what like reinforcing it like oh wow that was really impressive like you're good at that and like you're like oh maybe yeah. like you get you got kind of steered in a direction right but it takes time and like you don't know right away what what path you should i mean that's at least how i felt when i was younger no i agree with that 100 yeah. percent. i mean i i was figuring it out as a, i was going you know i'm still figuring out even just life as itself you know yeah. as we go day to day any other huge lessons that you picked up from the military i think like again i think it's such great foundation for young people i don't want to cut this part of your story short um I mean, patience, you know, um, you know, just in being and being a part of the government and even just being a part of how things work within the military. Um, you know, they teach you a lot about hurry up and wait. What does that mean? So it's like, you know, there's there's a point where you can work really hard and they'll get you to a point where you can achieve this and do that and do this. But at the same time, it's like, okay, now you have to to wait and be patient for the next opportunity mm. um, because there's always so many things going going on in the military that, that or within the government that they can put you someplace really fast, but you can spend the next two years in the same spot. Yeah. When I hear hurry up and wait, what goes through my mind is it's better to hurry up and be prepared than to wait and then hurry up and not be prepared, right? If it's yeah. if it's wait and then hurry up, you know, like because you never know. Yeah, because you, if you're prepared, you can go, right? Because you can miss a lot of things if you're you're hurrying and then you're waiting for yeah. everything to happen. So, so yeah, it's 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 definitely has its pluses and minuses and and how how things operate. Uh, but it 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 was a learning lesson and just t- teaching like it's. It's 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 better to to take your time and and um, get through the things that you need to get done and not just rush through them all. Yeah. So you do your four years. Um. Like at the end, like what, like where were you? If you can put yourself in that back in that position where you were then, what was going through your mind? What what, what was your um, path? I just wanted to get out at that time. Yeah, you didn't I want mean, to do I, I'd, couple of th- I'd spent a lot of time um, in the Middle East. Where, oh yeah, I was going to say, where were you? Um, Iraq, Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, I've spent a lot of time. Were I, you on a boat most of the time? No, because I was a corpsman and I did have, uh, I did end up getting certain calls. 
Um, I spent, you know, a lot of corpsmen end up spending a lot of time with Marine battalions. Um, myself, I end up getting some other special quals, as in, I mean, qualifications. Like I was a SAR swimmer, search and rescue. Um, I got swift boat qualifications, which are those fast boats. So Yeah, it sounds and, like a good time. I would want to get that qualification too. <laughs> so, you know, every fast boat has a gunnery uh, a gunner, a corpsman, and sometimes that corpsman and is the gunner also, um, and a driver, and then whatever, you know, unit is attached to that swift boat unit. Um, so, you know, I spent a lot of time on land more so than I did um, on boats. So, and out of, because I was in four and a half years, so out of four and a half years, I spent um, 13, wait. 38 months on deployment. Wow, that's, that's wild, man. So when you, so you have to do a minimum of four years, right? That's the requirement. No. No? No. I, I'm, you know, they structure, everybody's different. Yeah. Like, it's, it's no guarantee. Because um, you can do two years active and two years reserve, or you could do, you know, it's all varies. So how did you know you were done? Um, Because, you know, for me, like, I was just tired. I was exhausted. Yeah. yeah. I... The human mind it's just isn't meant to consume the war. Yeah, you know? and I haven't said it yet. Thank you for your service. Yeah. Appreciate that, man. Uh, so healthcare clinical case manager was your path after the military. Yeah. So what, what sets you on that path? Obviously, you had the background for it. Um, again, it was, um, it was an easy job to, to get into. Um, I had to experience the... I wanted to make sure I had um, private health care um, because the VA is not the best system. No. And I know I wanted to, to seek therapy um, after getting out of the military. And so the best way for me to do that was not to go and be a full-time student after getting out because, um, you know, I still did attend college and get my, my degrees, but... But I wanted to have a full-time job where I was able to still make more money than most of my friends were at that time, 23, 24 years old, still be able to travel, still have good benefits. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of the main reasons why I, um, I chose to continue that path into healthcare. So when, when did you finish the, the military? When did you get? Um, 2005. And how long were you in healthcare before starting to focus on taking interest in restaurants? Um, almost 11 years. Oh, 11 years. So, like 2000, so I see 2012, you spent some time at 58. Yeah. So, so 2011, Yardbird so, opened October 9th, 2011. So, like you I, were working in healthcare and restaurants at the same time at one point? A little overlap? So, I quit my last job, my last big job in healthcare and I moved back home and I Yardbird was about to open and I got a job like as a intern um right when we we're getting ready to open. So I'm I'm thinking about this and in like 11 10 years in a career you must have, you know, climbed the ladder a little bit. You're probably getting some job security, your quality of life yeah. is probably changing. It was a, it was a drastic change. My yeah, parents, man. I mean, what was going on for you? To my take parents sleep? thought I was crazy. I think most people would think you're crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Yeah, my paycheck was up there. It was it was pretty. 
it was um it was pretty good pretty um pretty nice career i had at that time in career I was traveling a lot um so what was missing the the humanity i didn't i didn't i didn't enjoy i didn't i didn't enjoy like what we were doing because i always felt like you know because i worked in the logistical side of things urban planning um as i started working with some nonprofits and things you know you'll you'll get money earmarked to you um to be a million dollars but by the time it gets to me it's only five hundred thousand dollars yeah that's because somebody somewhere has skimmed and taking things off the top you know and then it's just and practical things that you you see done throughout the international health system, um, and yeah, I just I was exacerbated with it, and you know through and the thing I haven't spoke on is just like throughout all of this, the military and working in healthcare, I was always cooking for friends and stuff on the side. Okay, I was curious. Like, so uh, that was going to be my follow up question. Like, at what point did like the culinary start to really swell in your life and take control? So yeah, I mean, they were they were always telling me like, oh, you should cook more. You should do this. You should do that. Um, and then when I finally quit and like I moved back home to Miami and staying with my parents, and I told them what I was going to do. Um, you know, that's 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 what I followed through. And then that summer I spent summer two thousand eleven. I just spent time just trying to find any job. Like, I thought I was going to go to the CIA, but, you know, obviously that caused the arm and a leg. Yeah. I mean, knowing what you know now, do you think you made the right choice not going? Absolutely. Why is that? Coloring school doesn't give you the real practicality of hotel, restaurant, hospitality life. Yeah. And for me, like, I look at it as, like, students come out. A lot of times with this impractical mindset of what it's like to be the graduate, they're gonna be a, a food star. Yeah. <laughs> that or, you know, they think they know everything. Especially yeah. some students who come from the CIA. Yeah. Or some of these, you know, bigger reputable schools. Um, not to discredit them and what they do teach and provide a lot of students. But um to me, like for for the majority it's you know, you're still coming in. You're starting to, you know, unless you've been working all that time while you're in school or you've been working before, like you're starting more like you're starting in garbage or you're starting as a prep cook. You know, well, in this day and age, you might just get thrown on a line just because. Right, see your pulse. So, <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, culinary school just, I'm happy I, I didn't go. Um, yeah. So did you just like stop the healthcare altogether and just go transition straight into working for restaurants or were you, was there a little bit of an overlap Were you hanging on to your career to test the waters of food and beverage? Well, I needed money because yeah. like I said, I, I worked at Yardbird as a, as an intern for almost five, five, six months. So I would work, you know, Yardbird hadn't opened yet. Um, we were just doing a lot of prepping and doing a lot of testing. So I did was, you realize how lucky you were to be on that opening? No, team? because I still didn't know anything about, like, the restaurant industry. Like, I knew I I enjoyed food, but I didn't know what it took. Like, I knew one thing. It's like you stand a lot. (laughs) But I I didn't know the hours. 
I didn't know anything about a James Beard. I didn't know nothing about Michelin Star. I I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know Jeff McGinnis was had already been on Top Chef. Like I think what, was that, that was the opening chef of Yardbird, right? Yeah. And then there's John Kunkel. I don't know. You, I'm sure you know the success story behind that. Yeah, yeah but John Kunkel wasn't John Kunkel as you know him now. You know? Who was he then? I mean, he was the same person, but what do you mean by that? I mean, he he hadn't sold Lime Fresh to Ruby Tuesday yet. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, all those... It hadn't... Like, I'm, I'm talking about, like, I, that was the first of his full-service restaurants, and it was supposed to be, an ex, like, you know, a chef-driven concept. It wasn't supposed to be in Singapore and Dallas and all that stuff originally, right. whatever. So, like, what 50 Eggs has grown into, which is great, it wasn't anything close to where we started at. What was John's role from your perspective? Like, how did you get to, to see him lead? Was he close to the, the day-to-day? Or at this point, do you think he was more just the owner working through his team? Um. I would say he was more so the owner working through his team. Okay. Because I mean, he had a good, he had a, he had a, a pretty good um, director of operations. His name was um, Eddie Acevedo. Okay. He now one of the top guys in Grove Bay hospitality here okay. in Miami. Um. So you know, we saw Eddie more than we did, you know, Kunkel. Got it. At this point, are you like? You know, this is my career. This is what I want to do. I'm in, or are you like, do you think you're just testing the waters at this point? Oh, no, I was in. Okay. I was, I was, because I got in there and, and I loved it. I was excited about it. I, I had fun with like the chefs and the cooks. Like, I was extremely intimidated being in that kitchen because. Like it's a kitchen full of rock stars. What are you like? Twenty three, twenty two years old? Oh, no, <laughs> you're, at this point, you're probably like, because you're working for 10 years, you're probably closer to 30. Yeah, I had I was twenty eight, about to turn twenty nine. Okay, yeah. Um, so I mean, I'm looking from like a fifty eggs perspective. You got this, you know, mature man coming with military experience. I'm thinking that like, that's definitely hire this person. Uh, for yeah, sure. I mean, that's one of the reasons Jeff said he did hire me for sure. Um, because he he saw I guess I'm sorry, I guess he saw the discipline that I already had in my life from you know. The military, going to college, getting my degrees, holding a career and moving up in it for 10, you know, over 10 years. And, you know, so it, that was one of the main reasons. And, you know, and then he he asked me things because I, you know, even before I started cooking, like I was always buying like the textbooks that you can buy offline from like the CIA or Johnson & Wells. And, you know, I would read through them and try to learn and practice certain things. So... You know, it, it those those little tidbits, you know, only I think open his mind and opportunity. He, he saw your passion. Yeah, because there's a lot of people that didn't want to hire me. Just Cheesecake Factory, places like that, never because of the experience wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, we do put a lot of emphasis. I think not so much today. We we hire more on attitude and culture fit than experience. I think that shift has almost been forced because of the, the, the amount of restaurants there are today. There's just so, such, such a demand for employees. Um, what was that first experience like for you? Like, did you have an, an idea of what it was going to be like? And was it anywhere near what your anticipation was? I honestly didn't. Um, I mean, it was like I said, it was a kitchen full of rock stars in my opinion. Every, you know, 
cooks, every you know, front of the house. It I just felt so out of place. Yeah, get into that. Like really, um, just describe the feeling that you had. I mean, there's there's one story I, I, I've, I haven't shared it with many people, but like there's this one time like because I was a prep cook and you know I was like I said I moved back home to Miami and I was still staying with my family and I was supposed to be to work. Um, just say it was supposed to be there like 10 a.m. Um, but I I was running late. But what actually happened? I had gotten I had came to work parked in a parking garage, sat there for maybe an hour and left and started driving home because I wasn't going to come back. Oh, shit. <laughs> Why? Because I was intimidated. I was scared. You know, like I just didn't. What, what intimidated you the most? The, the fact of just being in a kitchen full of people, I didn't. And I didn't know anything. And I was 28. And at the same time, I was like, I want this, but what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. Not to mention, I don't, I think, I mean, that's a very aggressive restaurant to be your first job. You're surrounded with people who've been working probably a good chunk of their life to like be able to get an opportunity to be in a, a part of a kitchen like this. And your background, your professionalism, your, you know, your military, your passion shined through. It gave you the internship, the opportunity, but I could see how you'd be intimidated by that. Yeah. I mean, I Imposter didn't, syndrome, I right? didn't know. Oh, that's that's <laughs> that's a significant thing in every chef's yeah. or every cook's life. Um, it's, it's still prevalent in my life now. Like I, yeah. I feel that coming into work every day sometimes because yeah. it's just like, like, and here I am, you know, the CDC of, uh, you know, one of the most popular bakeries in in the country. You know, so uh, I have a small role in that. Like as in the, the savory thing, there's still two um counterparts of mine's the pastry and the bread chef um and not only you know working for exact but you know imposter syndrome is just it's a it's a prevalent um thing in the everyday experience for 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 anybody in a leadership role i feel you know i don't care how much confidence you have like you know you're still faking it till you're making it sometimes mm-hmm. um but you know just you know go back to yardbird it's just yeah, it's just like for me it was I didn't know how well of a job I was doing just as in showing up and being being open, being consistent, being ready um every day no matter what. Um just sticking around and then kicking me out some days. Um even though I wasn't getting paid. Yeah, that's um, right. This is an internship. I forgot. They weren't paying. Quote, unquote, internship. What makes it quote, unquote? Um, because we weren't working like, you know, interns. You technically say, oh, you do three, four hours and you sign something off because you're going to school for it or something. Yeah. I wasn't in school. So when you approached them, were you going for a job or were you going for an internship? No, no. I was I was applying for jobs. Yeah. Like, um, I just somewhat... My, Someone had shared the email blast that 50 Eggs had put out for Yardbirds opening. And and I just replied to it. Yeah. This, But this was like, I replied to it in like July, but they didn't reach back out to me until like August. Okay. So I had even already forgotten about it. And I was working the night shift at a hospital. So, you know, that's how I sustained myself, you know, those first five months while I was yeah. cooking. And then eventually when they gave me a paid opportunity making nine dollars an hour by irresponsible has just do you quit do you, <laughs> do you mind me asking what you were making in the hospital before um 
It was it was about seventy. Seventy dollars an hour. No, no, no. Seventy grand a year. Seventy in salary. Got it. Yeah, I mean that's a big pay cut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Seventy so, is a very, is a very comfortable lifestyle if you live modestly. Yeah, I mean, you still, and that's twelve years ago now. Yeah. So seventy dollars. Probably closer then, to eighty. Yeah. Yeah. Now. 70s more like 60 or 50 yeah right especially in miami the geez i've I've heard how much the city's transformed over the past 15 years um so you're in your car you you turn around you leave you almost did or but you came back i i I was i was on my way home and you but you Um, came back yeah i came back because um the chef de cuisine phil o'brien um called me and you know He's just like, where the fuck are you? You're supposed to be here. And for me, in my mind, I was, it's like nobody was going to miss me. Nobody really cared. Yeah. So that's why I, when he did call that, like, I, if he wouldn't have called me, I, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. So he, he calls. You answer. He says, where the fuck are you? You're supposed to be here. And I'm just like, what you traffic. You're okay. That's basically it. And him calling, like... You know, I, I remember it still vividly to this day because, I mean, I know you all don't know the area, but, like, I was down, like, probably by Dayland Mall from, mm-hmm. you know, which is, from here is probably, like, a good 20, 20 minutes, 25 minutes drive. My parents stay in Homestead. Um, so I was still probably another 20 minutes away from their house. Yeah. So, but I remember coming through that stoplight like on 88th and him calling and talking and it's like i'm on my way i'm trying to get there as fast as i can chef and but literally you know i was turning trying to make a u-turn to actually come back to work yeah so you went back you have this internship how long is this and this internship turns into a paying job yeah you would have never gotten that opportunity do you think working at yardbird opened doors for you oh 100 what would have happened if you didn't go back I probably would have just kept working. I would would have continued to or figured out another path in That's healthcare. That's wild, man. Because I was actually even starting to, you know, I had, this is probably like after the, I think we were only open not even a month yeah. at Yardburg. Um, and I had, I don't know, I had, I remember playing with the thought of going into to, to healthcare information technology. Um, it probably wouldn't have been a bad career path, but <laughs> would you no, have been happy? I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say because now I'm I'm completely happy with what I'm doing as yeah. as a creative and leader and yeah. voice in, in in this industry. I love that. So, any other lessons? I mean, you spent about a year with Yardbird, correct? Two years. Two years. Yeah. Um, how did you grow as a professional? What What did I mean? It's so rare to have your first job. In food and beverage, be at a James Beard award-winning chef in first the early two jobs. Actually, first two jobs. That's because wild. I help. I mean, a lot of people forget forget about um, Kong Riverhouse. That's yeah. That was one of the other Fifty X concepts, which was killing it. We actually, we I don't know if I told you, we had John Conkle on the show twice. So um, we, I had him on the show. He was episode episode two hundred and fifty, and this time around, he was episode nine hundred and seventy. So if you guys want to listen to John Conkle's story. An amazing man, very smart, very dr- driven, very talented, passionate dude. Um, listen to episode 250 and 970 or 971. I apologize. I can't remember which episode that is. Um, but we hear the whole story 
uh, we, we told the story in the first episode up to about 50 eggs and then we picked up where we left off. So he, he gets into the details of all those restaurants, but Kong restaurant, I mean, uh, he, he got into it. It was super busy success. They weren't making any money because of the rent, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. imagine what it probably is now. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I think, I think they picked a too big of a space. Um, yeah, he got into it, and I think they're they're paying like a million dollars a month in rent or something like that, like upwards of like sixteen uh, percent of their of their. Yeah, that's even more than what I had heard, but I knew it was. I knew it's a lot. It was. I it was knew, crazy. I knew it's a lot. But, yeah. But Rule yeah, of I mean, thumb: we, we, le- less than eight percent, six percent is I is like good. And if you can get down to four percent rent, you're doing good, real, real good. Yeah. Anything above ten percent, like good luck. Keeping keeping your doors open, yeah. So, um, so yeah, you know, first two first two jobs were at you know James Beard nominated spaces. So, how did you grow as a professional? What did you learn? What what key elements did this experience, this two years experience, give you? And how did that launch you into success as a professional? Um, show up. I mean. That's that's all I ever learned. Um, I mean, it's just it's it's funny. It's just like the whole path of all my you know career I've been in, you know, from being an athlete, being in the Navy, um, you know, living and working overseas with you know different you know nonprofits, um, showing up for people, you know, and for me. That that means just you know you showing up for your your fellow cooks for your chef for your front house people for your guests you know and that that goes into you know the consistency the attitude uh, the preparation the planning um, the execution um, and also just just having fun with it and being creative. So how, how do they teach? How do you, how do you learn consistency? How do you learn? preparation how do you learn attitude um (laughs) you learn consistency by cutting eight quarts of small diced onions that's (laughs) going to go into a mornay that that's going to eventually get blended that nobody will ever see but your chef tells you to recut them because he wants you to be consistent in your knife cuts and that's something that you know chef de cuisine at at Yardbird used to have me do because we used to make freaking we had a what was it twenty gallon tilt skillet making mornay sauce for the mac and cheese back then. But that's a learn. But that's a missed opportunity if you're not thinking like that. Like yeah, you're gonna blend this down, but that's that's time to learn to to be able to mess up and nobody will know. It's it's understanding the reason for rhyme for me. Mm. Um, the reasoning in it at the end result probably doesn't make sense. But well, you, work, you think about labor expense and stuff like that. Like, does it make sense to put energy into something that's going to be Yeah, it's, ex- exactly. Yeah. But, but the rhyme of it all, the end result of what, you know, like at some point in time down the road, you know, he told me like, you know, like I saw certain things in you that you could potentially be better at and be. And like he knew he could challenge me. Did he say what he saw in you? Like he just knew he could challenge me to be better, to be, you know, to be great, that I wasn't going to be deflated, that I wasn't going to be demoralized or, yeah. 
or push back. Yeah. But I, I mean, I push back and just asking and understanding questions. Mm-hmm. And that's even something I, I try to encourage all cooks to do within yeah. respect of your leadership is to, is to ask questions, to, to challenge them to, you know, because sometimes even challenge them gives them perspective. Yeah. You know, I just realized something. You're the first CDC I've ever had on the show. <laughs> Which is kind of awesome. And like I, I just realized like you're gonna give us a whole new perspective on what it is to be in this position and how to lead the, from this position. Uh so I'm really excited for that. We're already freaking forty three minutes into this conversation with which blows my mind. And then, <laughs> no, like, it's going by fast. I'm loving what you're sharing with us. Um we're gonna take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We're gonna come back and just talk about your evolution as a CDC and how the your career path has set you up for being the CDC for arguably one of the best, probably top ten. I would say, if not top five uh, bakeries in the country. I think how many times is, has this Zach the Baker been nominated for a James Beard? Um, I, I mean, I know he's been in Simon Finals maybe four, three times. It's up there. Last, this is last the year. year was the first year that they were a finalist. And it just, it just so happened because I was a finalist last year. So, and personally. It was emerging chef, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, it's just. So, hopefully. You know, maybe together. <laughs> we, yeah, man. It can be a, Forces it can be combined. A, it can be a finalist and actually win one. Yeah, we're going to be right back to talk about how you evolved as a, as a professional. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Are you looking to grow your restaurants in 2023? Are you and your team focusing on driving more revenue? Or maybe you're interested in connecting more with your diners. Perhaps you want to increase your sales without physically expanding your brick and mortar. If any of these things sound familiar, then maybe you're looking for Pop Menu. Pop Menu is the restaurant technology designed to make growing your restaurant easy. With Pop Menu, you can attract more guests to your website that's designed to easily collect their contact info and data so you can see what your guests love and why they love to dine with you. With Pop Menu, you can stay top of mind and build authentic relationships with guests by using modern technology that drives new and repeat business. And with Pop Menu, make all your systems work better together. Improve your margins and conquer the chaos of your restaurant's digital presence. Pop Menu, technology for restaurants that are ready to grow. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rates at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month and to learn more about Pop Menu's entire collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. We're back and I'm just going to run through your resume real quick to kind of give the listeners an idea of where we're at and let let them know how much we have to cover in the next uh, 45 minutes we have with you. So 2013, you you leave 50 eggs. Uh, you go, you're the line cook at the Cypress Room. 2013, you're also at the Optimist. 2014, you're at the Matador Room by Jean-Georges. Uh, how do you say it, that full name? I'm going to screw it up. Bon der- I, I, didn't- don't, I don't even know how to say that. <laughs> I feel better now. We just call it JG. JG. <laughs> then you're at Atler in 2015. You're at Market uh, Boo um, by, is it the same John George or a different John George? What's that? The Market Boo? Yeah, yeah. It, um, it's the same. It's the same spot. Got it. Uh, 2000, at the same year, you're at uh, Ebby Chop Bar. Um, oh, yeah, that's just my. That's your pop-up. Yeah, that's right. Certain. 
Uh, so you have 2016, you started pop up. 2017, you're the executive chef at Shelly's. 2018, Lazy Betty Atlanta. And then 2019, um, your 2020 career, your career break. 2019 to 2020 ended up being a longer career break than you thought, probably because yeah, of I got in a, <laughs> actually I got in a really bad car accident. Oh, really? So yeah, we'll get um, into that. Um, and then Benny uh, on Eagle, yeah, Nashville, your first executive chef role. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. boutique hotel and restaurant. So we got a lot to cover, man. <laughs> um, reflecting back at that time, like what, in your opinion, where did you grow the most? Where does it make sense? To, to focus our conversation? Um, I would say that time between the, um, the optimist, well, wow, no. I mean, I would say I cooked the way I cooked because of the chefs who I worked for and got to know at the Cypress Room, which was in the very beginning, which is something I've always hold, held true to, and just in simpli- simplicity in how I cook. Um, you know, three, four real components on a on a plate, and not, you know, not necessarily what goes into those three, four components, but you know, just maximizing the the greatness of those three or four components on a dish. So it's for, not about working with more; it's about working with less. And yeah. bring them the most out of what you're working with. Yeah. Because, um, you know, by, you know, working for Chef, at the time, Chef's Cuisine was Roel, and his sous chef was Mike Beltrain, um, you know, of Ariad and Chugs. And um, and I've always looked at Mike as, you know, as a, a mentor and, a, and as someone who I look at even from afar, and I'm like, I want to emulate or tell a story through food like that, you know, because that was one thing he used to always even harp on talking about like 2013. It's like your food should have meaning and should have a story. What did he teach you about or how did he teach you to use food to tell a story? Take us through his process. Um, I mean, just he's he's classic example himself and, you know, his restaurant Ariette, he took, Cuban cuisine and made it sexier than it's probably ever been. Right. You know, and every dish that he, you know, especially in the early days, you know, when I was part of helping out with the opening team there, um, in some perspective, I wasn't like full on, like I just would help with lunch service and, and, uh, some prep here and there. But, um, that was me there because I enjoyed working for him or, <clears throat> and just being around him. Um, what made there, being around him pleasant? His energy, his attitude for food. What? Like he's, I mean, some people back then, you know, and even to an extent now might take his attitude as, you know, too strong or too abrasive or whatever. But for me, it was always just passion. You know, I guess even that's going to even... And I can relate to that because a lot of people take how I speak or how I respond to things in a kitchen is like anger or frustration, but it's just more that I care more than I probably should sometimes (laughs) Um, because I want consistency, you know, and then like I want every story to be the same for every guest. And that was like one thing he would tell us. 
So it's important for everything to look, feel, smell, you know, act, respond the same. Yeah. You know, you reminded me, I think I can't remember where it was. It's, it might've been Mario Del Perro from Mendocino farms that they would echo at the beginning and I think at the end, from the first person that walked through the doors to the last person that walked through the doors, first guest, last guest. Yeah. Around that mentality of whether it's the first guest in a, you know, whatever, how many turns, seat, night to the last guest. It's, it's the, the same. same experience. Always the same. Yeah. Um, so give me an example. It was Chef Mike, right? Was yeah, Mike Beltran. Beltran. What you said is energy. Give me an example. Of of like some like to paint that picture of what like it's hard to visualize energy so try to draw that picture of what he would do and how extreme he would get. Um. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I have I mean, I have several, but you know, it's just I don't know, it's hard to it's hard to. Replicate. It's hard to uh, use words to describe energy, right? Yeah. Give me an example of something that he would do or a story that just re- that like really stands out from your time with him that, that left an impression on you. I mean, like it was just something as simple as like if I didn't, I remember it's this, uh, it's like this tuna crudo that we did. Like if I didn't smear or cause we did this whip mascarpone and it was like a, a cucumber green, granita that we put on it and like if it just wasn't laid right or the flowers weren't placed right place right you know it's just little things like that it needs to be consistent the dish needs to be consistent in its evolution all the time yeah and you know i guess in the sense that he meant that as we do this like this dish needs to grow beyond you and your station and it needs to be something that the guest evolution grows from mm. as they're sitting there from first course to sixth course. Mm. Yeah. So, um, his passion and just even like, no just step to the side. Like if even we're in the middle of the station and he's down there on the, the grill station, cause we're only like a, a four man line coming over just to show me how to plate this, even though sometimes it felt like very angrily, but it, I knew it wasn't. I understood it was just because I wasn't doing it to the consistency that we needed to represent every day in that restaurant yeah. in the Cypress room. Yeah. I'm looking at the clock, man. I'm looking at your career. We're still really early on in it. Um, where, where do you think you started to shift from, you know, student to mentor and you became more of a leader. And also I noticed that you're doing about a year, at least a year at each one of these locations. Do you want to speak with like, what is appropriate if you get hired somewhere? Like, how do you find that balance of like getting perspective as a chef, but also giving back to the person that's, that's trading you? Um, so for me, I, I, I made that switch and I want to say probably when I finally got to the Matador room. Um, So this is only a year later. Really, 2014, you you jumped in at 2012. Two years, you went from line cook to chef or to leader. Yeah, because I was a chef to party. Okay. Um, It's pretty quick, man. um, But, I mean, 
again, I, I, I think um, my experience in just being in the military and coming from healthcare and the moves that I made and that had allowed me to have a different perspective and yeah. leadership and um, managing and leading people. Yeah, those are definitely verticals with discipline and standards and excellence is must. Yeah, I mean, only my, you know, going into to cooking, my only worry was getting the exposure. Um, exposure to what? The food. Okay, different perspectives. The right. hospitality. So your one year at each location approximately, it was really just to be able to give yourself perspective of the different. Yeah, I'm, I mean, Aaron, that's probably what it reads. But, I, you know, I loosely spent a little bit more time at some places. But a lot of time it's, yeah, that was my education. You know, like I didn't want to pigeonhole myself to to one one experience, yeah. one certain amount of exposure. What do you think, in your opinion, what is the right time to give one restaurant before moving on? Um, I think it's all relative in, in your growth and what you've being able to absorb from, from that space, you know? Um, like for me, like at Matador, I was there for a year, you know, but there was no upward movement. Yeah. Cause none of the sous chefs or anybody in the hotel was leaving. Yeah. So, you know, Jeremy helped me, Jeremy Ford, I mean, he wasn't Jeremy Ford, who he is now, but um, he helped me get a job with Brad. Um, and Brad wasn't, he wasn't Brad to the country, but we all know, knew Brad here in Miami as a very good chef at the time, too. And he's getting ready to open up Alter. So, worked at Alter. And, you know, while I did have my struggles there because I was dealing with a lot mentally. Um, Are you able to talk about that? I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, sure. I've, usually, I've, I give all my guests a warning that before we get started, I'm like, I ask personal questions, oh, that's and fine, it's weird. Really. The reason why I like that is because this is where we can learn, and I'm sure we don't talk about the personal stuff. Most of the media that's in the world today doesn't focus on. Nah, it's the flash. Yeah, and that's we're here. Our target market are people who are trying to pursue the career that you're pursued and that you've mm-hmm. achieved. Talk about the mental health. Um, I mean, for me, mental health is something that I've I've dealt with all my life. You, know, you mentioned it. You, you skimmed over it. I almost pulled back a layer when you said you wanted to make sure you had health care that would help with the mental health. So Yeah, so I like I know I my mom took me to a therapist when I was, you know, an adolescent. I can't say why that wasn't a continuous thing. I mean I can guess, but um You can't say that why you didn't continue to go to the therapist wasn't yeah, yeah. Okay. you know you know it's even now in adulthood you know like some of us might have these bouts in life where you go for a month or two months and then oh, i'm good you don't go anymore or life get busy and you don't go even though you you know you want to go the desire to will is there but for me like um mental health is is something that i know i've struggled with I've only realized it more in my late 30s, I guess say. I'm only, I'm just turned 40. So over the last three or four years, um, I've really owned it and tried to be, you know, not tried. I am working and consciously always trying to be aware of my mental health and how I'm feeling 
and how to respond to that and even make sure that the people around me are are aware of it and how they should or shouldn't respond to it you know like coming out of military like i was you know i was diagnosed with a, an adjustment disorder um what is that um essentially i have a it's a struggle to adjust to to new settings you know quickly it takes um and a lot of times you might even attribute that to my sometime change in life of a career or job yeah. um late you know more recently i was diagnosed with you know anxiety and it's um a personality disorder they call it schizoid um so you're just like almost like an extreme introvert okay you're a very mellow dude i can kind of yeah, pick yeah. up on that you know yeah i am um i get very intense when i'm on the line though <laughs> <laughs> um because i don't know it's like it's like playing sports again yeah it's like game winning touchdown game winning three the last 10 meters come before the finish line like that's what cooking feels like to me yeah um but it's fun mm. like it's it's not repetitive it's it's not work yeah man i think self-awareness is something that comes with age uh literally your frontal lobe is what kind of dictates self-awareness uh and that doesn't even finish developing for men later in life close to 30 28 30 yeah. uh and so it takes time for that self-awareness to kick in and and to be willing to own it and be okay with who you are you know and to into like, like you said using your words how to own it so how do you own mental health like explain to our listeners who might be kind of shaking their head like well like I, don't, I don't think <laughs> I mean, I, I know what, what you mean by, by the, the phrase, but I don't think it's something you can ever own because it's it's different. Every It's not a... Well, you were saying how to communicate, how to talk to me when I'm feeling oh, like this, well, yeah, being willing to tell people when you are mm-hmm. maybe going in that direction, you're becoming aware of it. You know, we were before when you were a younger man, you maybe didn't quite understand yourself as well. as so yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to fill in the blanks for you, but... No, I, I would... Not assessment, yeah, I agree. Um, but it's it's also acknowledging that mental health isn't just a once a week or once a month or twice a year type of feeling or mood. Um, it can be a minute to minute or hour to hour. Mm. Um, it's it's understanding that, like, if you need that time, like, you need to make sure that the people who are around you are aware of that you know, and are comfortable and understanding to give you that time. And even for you to be able to comfortable to ask for that time in that space. Would you get, and you're getting vulnerable right now. And I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. I really do. Give me an example of what do you mean by getting to that time when you're, when you're feeling like fill in the blank, you know that it's time to fill in the blank. Um, I mean, it just happened to me a couple of weeks ago here. Um, like I came into work and I just was not feeling good. Yeah. And I, rep- I I recognized it immediately. Feeling um, anxious? Yeah, it was just it was it was anxiety. Um, equilibrium just fell off. Um, it was almost like a it's like a feeling of vertigo. Mm. 
Um, I've never even felt that, so it's hard for me to even so I, relate. You know, I, I remember I told to a few of my coworkers here, but lo and behold, like, you know, I just end up having a, a unpleasant interaction with one of the front of house people as they're trying to expo, and I'm trying to, you know, help put out food that kind of got behind and blah blah blah. So, and I didn't, you know, I'm just saying, like, I did not, even though I did recognize it, I didn't take that step back and at that in that day in that moment and tell people that I needed a moment or a time yeah. what does I mean as somebody who's never experienced Virgo maybe I have and I haven't been aware of it like or maybe somebody who's listening to this who maybe has experienced it but they don't know what to identify it as what does a vertical feel like what is, is it like a narrowing of like focus or yeah it's 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 like an imbalance um like I mean, if you've ever been high, yeah, um, <laughs> like where you can feel like lucid or like you're floating or like you can feel like if you turn that's too the fa- anxiety, the chemicals. Yeah, you turn too fast yeah. and you might feel like you're not doing a pirouette, mm. but you're actually just about to tickle tumble down the stairways and stuff like that. Yeah. So when you're feeling this, what's that's the trigger, right? I'm feeling like this. If this then what? What happens next for you now that you're more self-aware? You ask, you, you let it be known, you communicate. Um, for me, I, I'm, I find a moment, which is usually the walk-in, uh, which everybody knows a walk-in can tell a million, <laughs> million <laughs> Hold a lot of secrets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, it's that or, um, you know, just go take a walk outside yeah. and I'll take a moment and just – probably just meditate yeah for and, a minute or two and that's what that's your frontal lobe kicking in and overriding your more primitive mind that's really what's happening from what my understanding uh, emotions come from the more reptilian part of our brains right yeah. and we've evolved over time our frontal lobe is the most recent evolution and it's the executive yeah it, it, and you can literally when you feel this happening <sighs> breathe forcing yourself to focus on your breathing quiets everything else this is why we meditate yeah and it's very powerful and like you when you feel yourself coming to this place you can pull yourself out of it by focusing on the breath and and choosing to gain control absolutely yeah it's powerful shit it's like one of one of my favorite songs with j cole when he just wrote that song about just and he just like meditate yeah like and And it was like to me like that's you know, for especially in hip hop culture and even even just in black culture or even most minority cultures that like meditating or therapy isn't an answer. Like it's like go to church or go to sleep. Yeah. Or go do something. You know, not a the mindset, especially of our generation is more like, you know, pray for a good Or go therapy. do drugs or get drunk. <laughs> yeah. You know, which has been an issue in the industry, that's usually how we cope. Yeah. Is that we use chemicals to dampen the emotional. Yeah, noise, absolutely. You know? So, you know, and for me, like that's even when, you know, a lot of spaces that I've, you know, I've taken leadership or ownership of as whether it's sous chef, CDC, executive chef, if it's alcohol, there's no things that shift these. Yeah. Um, just because I don't want to, to continue that habitual habit of like, okay, we've had a hard night, so let's let's cope with it. Let's cope with it yeah. by consuming alcohol. Um, 
I, I have no problem with alcohol, but I don't think as a business that's something like I want to encourage my yeah. employees to do after a long, hard night yeah. as a reward. You know, there's a book out there. I'm not going to get into it because I echo it too much. It's called um, How We, it's called, the name of the book is called Drunk. How We Stip, Stumble, or Slipped, Sipped, Stumbled, and Something Not. I'm destroying the subtitle. The name of the book is called Drunk, Edward Singerland. It talks about the evolution of of humans relationship with alcohol over time from when we literally first discovered, like when we were monkeys and we we're eating uh, like fruit that was overripe and, yeah. and that we developed, it goes that far back. Um, <laughs> it's, fa- and it's, it's fascinating. The evolution, how we evolved side by side with alcohol as a species. Um, and I think it's, we have a really messed up relationship with alcohol because we exist with alcohol during an unpre- unprecedented time where alcohol stronger than ever before. Like, like, uh, <laughs> like, no, seriously. Um, like distilled no, alcohol it's, it's, is only 200 year old invention. If you're alive today, it's all you've ever known, but it's a relatively new invention relative to the history of humanity. Yeah. And it's more abundant than ever before. And if you're working in the restaurant industry, it's closer than ever before. It's literally on the other side of the wall or literally right behind you for some people, yeah. depending on where you that's are. That's what you're cooking with. It's, exactly. That's yeah. So, I mean, it's weird because I think alcohol can be very positive if you use it the way that we evolved to to use it for celebration, to to like meet people, to like uh, it could be a great tool, but it can also, but we because of the, our relationship with it today, it's almost like too too much for us. Yeah, it was never meant to be this. No, I, I mean that's alcohol is it has a funny place in our society now, and not like it like you said it's it's I don't think it was ever meant to be how it is viewed and consumed now, like especially in a city like Miami where alcohol is, if you don't have alcohol, you don't have an event. Yeah. You don't have people showing up. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the standard bearer. Yeah. It's a reason why a bar can be just as popular as one of the the best restaurants in the world. Mm. You know, um, it's, it's a reason why, you know, alcohol balances out, you know, your, your books, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so. it, it's a great. I mean, the reason why I bring the book up, I agree with you one hundred percent that it's, it's we shouldn't dive or what's the word default to alcohol as the mm-hmm. coping mechanism. Uh, and but reading that book will get, will totally change your perspective on in your relationship with alcohol. I recommend it to anybody in the the, the service industry. Um, I'm check it out. For yeah, sure. man, it's it's fascinating. It's on Audible too. It's an audio book. You know, I love, yeah, I love audio books. Yeah, man, they're great. <laughs> um, so I mean. Where else? Ha- where I still want to talk about where you are today and what's going on and what your vision. I also want to talk about the state of the industry. But wh- you know your career, your life better than we do. What do you want to talk about? What, what unique perspective do you have that we should know about? Um, I mean, for me, I'm I'm as of more recently, you know, um, as in just in recently in the last three years, four years, you know, I'm I'm a I'm an advocate for you know black chefs and black black food you know trying to give it more of a presence even like how i spoke about mike beltran making cuban food you know um the sexiest it's ever been um like i want to be a part of that that beginning a new wave of black chefs that you know whether it's you know, obviously someone you spoke to today, um, Aquino West, who's one of my best friends. Um, you know, other black chefs here in Miami, Tristan Epps, um, who 
just left um, Red Rooster, but he's worked for Marcus Samuelson for years and other great places. And, you know, that's just two of the other black chefs here in Miami um, and the many more that's across this country that we're all just trying to bring a new lens and focus to to black food and, you know, make it feel sexy, mm. make it have a place right next to Italian, Mediterranean, Japanese, Peruvian, you name it. Um, and also for me, it's important about telling a story and drawing upon connections. And, you know, even here at home, as you know, you mentioned briefly earlier about um, my um, love hate with my own city. <laughs> um, it's the, the systematic and social economical and underlying racial tones that we do have here in a city like Miami. Um, can you I mean, can you get into it? Cause I really have no, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. probably one of the most least diverse places Yeah, so in the, in the country. So Miami is an extremely diverse city, um, diverse within the Latin cultures, diverse within the Caribbean culture that is here. Um, but even within that diversity stops within the actual like people you see, but the attitudes that you see aren't always as diverse. Um, there's limits to, to the growth and the potential of local businesses here. The attitudes aren't as diverse. What do you mean by that? Just people aren't as open-minded to work with different people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that about everybody. I mean, there's a lot of great chefs here who are, I mean, who are very open-minded and are very hardworking and are about bringing upon diversity in culture. Because, I mean, obviously, like, I wouldn't be working for a kosher bakery in the heart of Wynwood, one of the most popular bakeries and popular spaces to come in the United States as a black chef for... Um, a white owner, a white chef himself, if that wasn't the case here in Miami. Um, but it's like, you know, even I said a couple of days ago in an interview to someone, it's like, as a minority um, in this country, but even more specifically, as a black man, a black chef in Miami, it's like, if you get an opportunity, it's almost, you can't, you can't hit a single you, you got to swing for the fence and you got to knock it out because to, to make it. You, you can't, you got to be on all the time is what you're saying. I want to yeah. make sure I'm hearing you right. So from, I want to make sure I'm fully understanding. So from your perspective, in order to have the same level of success as a colleague who might be white or of a different nationality, you have to be on always. Is that yeah, what I'm hearing? 100%. Hmm. Like I, I feel like there's no, there's no tiptoeing around that. Yeah. Um, like my opportunities aren't as bountiful and as plentiful all the time. I've put myself in position by working hard and going into, you know, more predominantly white spaces um, to to gain the knowledge, gain the experience. And a lot of times, like the frustration with some black people who come into the hospitality industry, they don't want to go in those spaces because there's not as many familiar faces. I'm, you know, like. 
this is really good perspective, man. Um, keep going, though. I don't want to cut you short. So, um, so a lot of times, they don't take those opportunities. They go into private chef. They go into catering. Um, they don't even continue in the industry because they're frustrated. Mm. Um, you can look around Miami. Yeah. There's, it's not many well-known black chefs that's leading prominent spaces in kitchen. Yeah. So there's not even many black bartenders that you can say are even working in the best craft cocktails here. And we have four of the best bars in the world here. And, um, you know, so it's, it's evident and it's apparent, but it's almost like one of those faux pas things nobody really talks about it or pays attention to it. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, and that's one of my frustrations and like, I guess the opposite of Aquino and Jamila, they, they've persevered and they've been resilient and being committed to Miami. Um, I've chose to leave, you know, why'd you choose to leave? Chef told me in the beginning of my career, you want to get better, you need to leave South Florida. But also South Florida wasn't where it is now. It's it's an exceptional food city. Well, I think that's true no matter where you are in the yeah. world. If you want to be better, get out of your bubble. Go get perspective, right? Well, yeah. And and perspective is important to, to – it's a key ingredient to life. Mm. Um, it's a key ingredient to to career. Yeah. Um. I think I think it's also the key degree to help understand the racial uh, turbulence in the world right now. Yeah, is listening to other people's perspective and, and trying to understand versus be understood. Right? Yeah, for me, it's just like I want the connections to be to, to be explored and the opportunities and equality to to be to be exposed yeah. and be opened up more. Yeah. Um, so I've never really spoken a lot about race on the show mm-hmm. before because honestly I'm afraid to talk about it because of how how scary it can be like with the yeah, cancel culture. You say the wrong, you, you say something wrong once, it gets misinterpreted as a soundbite, it gets spread, and it's a yeah. scary world that we live yeah, in. It is. But if, I think because of that, people are afraid to talk, yeah. and that's more dangerous than than not like talking and saying the wrong thing is not as dangerous as not talking and not understanding. Yeah. And that's all happened just because of the advent of, um, you know, the social media world that we live in. Those conversations get turned into 15, 30 seconds, one minute bites that don't even encapsulate the full conversation and the story. I think it's a byproduct of the way that, that social media is designed to work. It's mm-hmm. not meant to be long drawn out, meaningful, holistic conversation. It's meant to be quick and digestible. But when ha- what happens is you don't get the full story. Yeah. Yeah. I wish a lot of stuff can be just turned into what those reels are. You could get every bit of that story and just like that 15, 30 second. But reel. you can't, you can't, which you is can't. why we're here for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to um, try to get the full story. But I, I mean, you know, I love I love my city. You know, I I've said it sometimes I feel like, you know, I love Miami more yeah. than it loves me. But I don't I think that's a loose statement yeah. too because you know, I know the chefs, the friends that I've cultivated here over years, the forty years of living, like they do love me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's plenty of people out here that that support me. Obviously I you know, I guess you've heard some of that already just being here for a few days 
and I appreciate that and I respect that more than anything. So, you know, um, that's also about me changing my attitude and perception, even just about my city. And, um, you know, and like I said, I, I'd like to cook and lead more and draw upon connections and not be divisive, um, in how I speak and how I live and how I move. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I want more than anything for, for me being back home in Miami now for four months, you know, especially, you know, being in Asheville for almost two years and, you know, Asheville is a predominantly white city. Um, and I could thrive in that city. Yeah. Um, why can't I thrive at home in a city that is pretty much Almost more m- more yeah. resemblance of me as a as a person than any place else in in this country or world? Yeah, I mean, I think Miami is probably the one of the most diverse cities, like as far as across sports, right? Equal amounts mm-hmm. every race. Yeah, I don't know what the exact demographics are of the city, but you can definitely pick up in the diversity here. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful place. Yeah, it's beyond the partying and the drinking and the beaches. Yeah, <laughs> and the, it, it the is, people driving like jerks. <laughs> that's yeah, an that's issue it. for me. Yeah. Was, I've been I've been yelling at every driver on the road yeah. the past couple of days. But I mean, you've been very vulnerable with us, and I really appreciate that. And I I, I want to reciprocate and get vulnerable myself as a, a a white man who grew up in New Hampshire, where I think the there is maybe a three percent like mixed like, like either if that's brown or black or yellow it's a very it's not a very diverse place so i grew up experiencing racism and i wasn't even aware of it because to me that's what i was acclimated to yeah it was just there and and i actually lived um during the pandemic i moved to austin texas and it was going to be my year january 1st i moved to austin texas so it was going to be my year and i moved in uh, with a friend who is in the service industry casey hensley who had um he started a facebook group called uh in the weeds that was like a community of, of service professionals i moved in with him and his it is uh girlfriend at the time now fiance she's black and that was my first time as a as a white man really getting uh forced to get perspective from a black person because mm-hmm. i I was literally trapped in a house with her, you know, we, and we had some conversations and I don't know if you remember, what year was this 2020? Oh, wow. Like real recent. So, um, 2020, all the stuff that was happening in the world, um, with all the, the riots and the, the conversation around race and racism. And you better believe that I, these conversations came up in the house. Cause we're in Austin, Texas. There's, I don't know if you remember what was happening in Austin during that time. It was getting wild and it was like happening right outside our door. So of course we spoke about it, but I think it was, it was beautiful because for the first time I was trapped in a fucking house with somebody for months and I was forced to have the conversation and it forced me to understand the perspectives and it forced me to go out and read. I read uh, white fragility. I read, um, so you want to talk about race because I, in this position as a podcaster about transforming the industry, I was like, I need to try to understand. And I really tried to understand. And uh, as a, somebody who studies culture, my job is, to study business and culture is a part of that, but culture, the, the laws of culture are universal, whether it's in a business, in a town, in a city, in a, in yeah. a state, in a country, in the world, the rules are the same. And I'm trying to figure out like, what's the matter? Why? And really what I came down to it, I don't think sometimes I don't think it's a matter of white and black. I think it's a matter of culture and different cultures. And we feel comfortable with the people who share our culture, our yeah. culture. I mean, but it's like you said earlier, um, because within your cultures, it's, it's unset things that you don't speak on. And because you're not speaking on it, you, there's never a conversation started. Bingo. 
Um, there's a podcast um, that I was listening to the, the, um, yesterday morning when I was coming in, and it's an NPR pod- podcast. Um, I forgot the name of it off my head, but um, basically it's based off of, um, um, what is it, um, Carter, is it Carter G. Woodson? Um, or is it Charles D. Woodson? I forgot. I'm people are going to hate me because I, this is a we prominent black figure yeah. that was important to um, the creation of Black History Month. Um, you know, obviously it started as Black History Week. Um, he's one of the first first two or three black people to graduate from Harvard University. Um, but Whitson name in this country, that name really is comes from really some of the founders of this country you're talking about the original 13 colonies yeah um and they started off just talking about like how the black side of that family with the Whitson name um discovered or no the white side of the family who had the Whitson name they had this this book that they've been passing down for years that's always been telling this story about like how Indians came into their village and pillaged and this whole heroic heroic story, but they never talked about the other part of that book that was in there of that their family owns slaves. Um, But here it is, fast forward, this older guy, he's been a drummer, successful drummer in many different bands in the 70s and 80s. He... I guess he somehow got, you know, he got hold of the book and actually really started looking through it. And he saw some of these stories and he remember asking his, I forgot who it was. He said his grandfather or someone about why weren't these stories ever told? And they're just like, well, we didn't think it was important. And he was just like, that's where the conversation should have started with their family and not the story of just this heroism of the family of you know indians pillaging their villages and they're being heroic and people hiding and saving and stuff like that but they never told the full story it's had the full conversation with the family and now fast forward he meets some of his black aunts you know relatives with the same name woodson now and, you know, he's developed a relationship, you know, with three or four different generations and even other parts of that family developed a relationship with their black side. They, you know, they even had a video recording that they played on the audio, obviously, of, a, I guess, a ceremony where this family, both sides, the black and the white family came together and they had a ceremony where this, you know, white guy on the Whitson side of the family and several of them, you know, wanted to apologize. They wanted to make amends. They wanted to start to have a conversation that they never grew up having to better understand, you know, the the systematic problems within the cultures that we have and we live in today. So when you say systematic, you're saying it's baked into the government into the way that we go about every day it's 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 omnipresent there's no escaping it because it's everywhere 
can you be more specific exactly like which systems are the ones that are like is it worth going in there like like uh, I, I don't i mean you know like how do we how do we fix it if we don't know exactly i mean it's just it something as simple as like you know living in this state and our governor is trying to get rid of you know african-american studies mm. you know it's just little things that like are it's awkward to talk about this stuff but i think that's good you know, it's like it's it's good. I I I mean, I for me, I I love talking about it. It's fucking let loose, brother. Like I want to know. Like, I, I want to understand. But um, you know, I also know it's a time and a place for it all too. I, I think um, now is the time and place, <laughs> honestly, man. So I I think that you know I just think that the the problem really just lies in not like like you said, it's just not having the conversations. Yeah. So let's have it. <laughs> let's go there let's be the one to break the ice you know so, i think it's important um so i'll i'll reciprocate so um in my study of cultures and how we are meant uh, and, and not just culture but human behavior i feel uh there's certain things that are baked into our dna as human beings not white or black or asian or hispanic all of us have certain defense mechanisms that are that we evolved that are no longer self-serving mm-hmm. um they did the study um that on, on every all races and they show pictures um, to somebody and they have their brain hooked up to all these like little gadgets machines that they're like monitoring the brain. So you see a picture of like a bird, nothing. You see a picture of a spider. Oh, I, I think I've seen, you know, and like, and basically all the things that pose a threat to you, things that we've evolved naturally to be fearful from snakes, spiders, I'm going to get gross here, vomit, shit, things that if you come in contact with, it's disgusting. Yeah. It's repulsive, and that and it's it's an inconvenient truth that when we see a face of somebody who looks different, the same part of our brain, our brain lights up. But there's a reason for that. It's because ten thousand years ago, if I were to run as a as a white man, if I were to run into somebody who looked different to me, that person was a threat. They could have killed me because one, they have different beliefs. In and that we would eventually conflict would happen or resources competing over resources Two, they might have disease that I, my people don't have. So I'm exposing myself to disease or, or not disease, but like, uh, um, like whatever, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, I've, you know, you never, so think it's about dangerous. It, you never think about it in that perspective, but that, I mean, cause a lot of our traumas are hereditary, mm-hmm. you know, how we believe, how we feel, how we think, you know, so I think yeah. it's human nature yeah. to to be naturally adverse to people who aren't like us out of a survival. Um, but that's just like emotions, right? We talked earlier about your emotions and how we mm-hmm. have emotions. And those emotions are part of our earlier survival. We're, we're, we were prey at one point. So we, we weren't always apex predators. So we developed these emotions to be fearful, anxiety, to be, and those are no longer serving us in, yeah. as an as a apex predator. These emotions of being fearful of people who don't look like us, that's no longer serving us. But I think it's important to admit that it does happen because you're in denial. Yeah, I agree with that. Because you're in denial and it's human nature, but it's no longer serving you. So admit it. You have, you have biases. But that's, you know, that's the hard part about, about anything we do in life. You know, even just, like I said, it's just me and my mental health or anybody with the substance abuse issue. But once you admit it, it's easier to, to open your mind. Because if you don't admit it, you're just fucking defensive. Yeah. And that's going to be your default. And we, we have, I mean, but that's, that's the hard part of, it's, it's so getting, to, it's getting, 
not one of us, two of us, three of us, but all of us to to admit that there is the human or the human the first thing you're going to do is is defend yourself and your group of people and that's human nature which is why i think the first thing has to be accept the fact that mm-hmm. you are racist no matter who you are yeah it's a little bit about you and maybe you, there are certain people that are absolutely like absolutely they are, they're fucked up and they believe that one race is better than the other and like yeah. that's messed up and i'm not saying that doesn't exist but I think the majority of people mm-hmm. want to see a better future. I think yeah. that's safe in saying. And yeah. I think I, I, I would I would agree with that one hundred percent. Like I, I think there's more there's more willing for change and more open mindedness. Yeah. But I you know, within that same perspective there there's a lot of us who aren't willing to op- you know, upset or turn over that apple cart, yes. so to speak. I think that's so. a great point to take our first break to thank our sponsors and be right back to kind of talk about what's what's the future how do we move beyond this how do we get to a better place recently on the show you've been hearing it come up often restaurant systems pro if you've become interested i highly recommend you sign up for the restaurant system pro 60 day pilot program this is something that's never been done before this 60 day event is at no cost to you but it's not for everyone Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. All right, so we are back. And um, I want to use the last few minutes um, of today's conversation to kind of try to understand like what we can do, everybody, what everybody can do to move into a world that's more diverse, more culturally, I don't know, open-minded and equal opportunity. Like, well, how do we achieve that, right? So... Let me ask you a question. Do you think that people tend to gravitate towards other people who are like them? Yeah. Do you think that's an issue when 55% of a country is made up of one type of person? Yeah. (laughs) So how do we come up? It's that that thing of like, um, that, what is that catchphrase? Um, or, the defense mechanism of a word is like, well, I have a black friend too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. or I have a Spanish friend too, or, you know, like there's, 
I had this conversation recently with, you know, with someone I worked with. Um, and it was even, it was speaking about, like I mentioned to you briefly earlier that, you know, I've done a series of, you know, dinners. Um, and, you know, my pop, you know, what I do is focus on food of the African diaspora. Um, obviously, not, you know, tidbits of it here at the bakery somewhat, but, you know, as a whole, whatever future establishment I want to open up, uh, um, it will be focused on that. But he asked me, and I've been asked this many a times, like, are the dinners that I'm doing focusing on the African diaspora a black thing? And, you know, and I'm uh, like emphatically, no, it's not. Um, but it's, it's, it's the mindset, like a lot of times that I feel like if, if you're for your culture, you're almost against other cultures, Mm. you know? And I, you know, I say that to circle back to what you, you know, what you asked is that like, we all gravitate to our own cultures more so than, and it's just nature, even just the, the, point which you're making earlier but maybe not so much here in Miami but people of the Latin culture black culture we're forced to maneuver and live in more white spaces than white people are forced to come into our spaces and to be comfortable and live because his point was it's like yeah I would love to go but I would feel really uncomfortable with a lot of black people and I, my point to him was like, you don't think it's two way street, dude. This is the difference. And he, you know, he, the point he made is like, well, you know, I'm Jewish and there's, there's racism and stereotypes. And I'm like, yes, I 100% agree with you. And you, but the difference is you can take off your yarmulke and you can pass as a, as a white man. Yeah. For me, I can't take off my skin. Mm. I can't take how I look or how I talk or people respond to me um, from day to day. Mm-hmm. So I walk into any space. Not all, I don't say any space, but some spaces. Mm-hmm. And there's always a perceived notion of me or might, like how you mentioned earlier, there's a subconscious or reaction to that of me just walking into the room. And that's just because how we've been, you know, hereditary brains and minds worked over years um, of what Latin or black spaces uh, faces um, mean. So do I think that, um, like I said earlier, yeah, I I think we do naturally gravitate towards our own cultures and we do it with reason. Um, it's security, it's safety. It's it's the human default. It's what we do subconsciously because we want to be surrounded with people who we trust and we feel comfortable. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's security, and, and we don't. I don't think we're aware we're doing it. No, I, I don't think a lot of times we are. Um, but I I'm, I just say that to say that like I think that in most most other cultures outside of Latin and Black culture, it's it's less likely to happen yeah well you don't 
when you are of the majority, mm-hmm. you're not struck with that problem because you never have to go into a minority situation. Yeah. If you were to split the, the books, if tomorrow we woke up and everyone who was black was white and everyone who was white was black, <laughs> it would be the same issue. You know what I'm saying? Or like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's just the, the it's, we came into this world a, a, a way and we are that way. And we happen to live in a country where there is a majority of one race. Um, so the question is, um, I, honestly, w- what I want to say and correct me. I, I'm here to learn. I'm here to understand. Mm-hmm. So if I'm wrong at any point, please correct me from your perspective. I want to acknowledge you and commend you for having the bravery. And that's really what the, it is at the end of the day to get outside of that comfort zone, to go surround yourself with people who are not like you because that's where the opportunity is. Is that, am I wrong with saying that? No, you're not. Um, Cause you know, I said it earlier, like it's, it's an opportunity that a lot of minorities don't take. And I, and I agree with you and the feeling that I, as a white man lately, the past couple of years, I've felt frustrated because I'm trying to do everything I can to, to be more welcoming. But honestly speaking, when I'm around black people, sometimes I don't feel comfortable and it's not because I'm afraid of that people, but I'm afraid of what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm afraid of how I'm going to offend you. I'm afraid of, of uh, those things. Another, I, another one of my friends is kind of, I mean, not kind of, they said the same thing pretty much. Yeah. It's, it's not of, it's not because of, we feel you, as a threat it's because like I'm afraid that you're not going to accept me. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's a complete opposite usually with, you know, most, most people in the world. It's just a lot of times like they might, like, let me not say they, most cultures when there's a, a majority culture introduced to that picture, they're more threatened by, your presence there, even if it's only one versus 10, then it, um, then the opposite way around yeah. because we are trying to understand your place yeah. there. Yeah. But once we understand that place, it can be the most welcoming yeah. and fun and open-minded. Yeah. And I do think for the most part, like we live in a world where people want a better place and people who are of the majority are arms open. Like, like come like, like, here's opportunity for you. But at the end of the day, I think the majority can open the door, but the minority still has to walk through it. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and, that's what I, I mean, and I said, that's what I want. And that's yeah. even what I try to do with the food and the places and the spaces that I try to enter into. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times the dinners that I might be involved in as a guest chef among four or five, I'm more likely the only black chef there. Sometimes, especially in Asheville, I was the only minority chef. Um, But to me, I look at it as an opportunity to, like, whether it's Aquino and Jamila or it's my friend Tristan or my friends up in Atlanta that are really reputable black chefs and have achieved things or Chicago. People that I know, like, it's putting a face to, to the opportunities you know, not letting, letting, you know, letting the world see our, you know, the world beyond just black culture that, that, you know, um, and even more, more specifically to other black people for me, showing them that it is possible that, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to just per se do the fast casual or a mom and pop thing, or, you know, there's, 
more creativity and you know ingenuity to hospitality to than just you know opening up a, a dimly lit restaurant with a lot of blue lights and shitty plates and you know not very good quality ingredients um it's it's just showing that there's more to it you know to hospitality to restaurants to craft cocktails and wine um than what we've what we see in our communities so is this are we dancing around your love hate relationship with uh Miami cuisine right now is this is this associated? Oh, no. no okay no no i i love miami food okay. <laughs> like some of my best, like, like no, I I love Miami food. I don't like places like Sexy Fish or you know these big mammoth transplant places. But like the authentic Miami stuff, like, I mean, how can you not? Like, it's so much goodness in it, you know. Mm. Um, so um, it, no, this is just. This is just more about, like I said, it's just I'm putting, because, you know, sometimes you have, I have white cooks, black cooks, Spanish cooks that, you know, don't even know me or I don't know them. They just reach out and it's like, you're inspiring. And I'm like, to me, like, I'm still thinking like, damn, I'm just still trying to figure out how to make my own way and carve out a space and be more present to, to show up for my staff you know, to make sure they have the tools. And, um, you know, like I always say, like, I, I, I manage, I won't say I manage, but I want to teach and lead the, the actual person and a human being mm-hmm. and not the employee. Yeah. Because that person could have got a flat tire on their way to work, but they got that flat tire and they showed their ass up here today. Mm. So my job is to do like where they're showing up still an hour before to get ready or they're showing up 10 minutes after to make sure that when they get here, their day is going to go that much more smoother, making sure I'm helping them get their station set up, putting them in a position for success. So as an entirety, as a kitchen, we can or as a restaurant, we can be successful that day. Hmm. So for me, it's important to always recognize the people and the person and not just an employee, you know, um, on my schedule that can fill the void. So I don't have to work the line because that's not my attitude. Chef Cleo, man, I'm really loving today's conversation. Thank you for letting me get vulnerable. Thank you for getting vulnerable and listening. Um, it was a amazing perspective and, um, a conversation that probably needs to happen more often than not personally. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe definitely. I agree. Um, is there anything we haven't discussed that you think you offer a unique perspective to or something that you're hoping would come out of today's discussion that hasn't? No, I mean, I don't really think, I mean, I don't think my, my perspective is all that much different or unique. I just think it's just, like you said, like we both said, it's just not spoke on enough. Yeah. I think we all think it, I think we all feel it. I just think that, you know, we just, have to sometimes be okay with being uncomfortable and get yeah. uncomfortable to be able to to challenge and to grow each yeah. other. And I, I want to like end the free flowing portion of today's conversation with the idea that I think the world's a lot better and more welcoming than the media lets you think. I think a lot of times the media surfaces the extremes of the world we live in and Absolutely. it can feel like it's a lot 
rougher than it really <laughs> yeah. is. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I choose when I'm on the road, I have the apps on because if people are trying to get a hold of me. I need, I feel like I need to be plugged in in case someone's trying to like, I think we connected with you through Instagram while we're yeah, yeah. Um, So there's opportunity that comes in through social media and there is good that comes from social media, but I think it gives you a real warped sense of reality and I don't like to expose myself to it. So I, sh- I delete the apps when I'm home um, because I don't, I think it makes it's, it frustrates me. I get angry with social media. Sometimes you're shaking your head. Do you feel the same way? Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously now it's more of myself. I guess you could say like, someone tell me like you're more of a brand now because you've you've achieved you know i didn't win a james beard but i was you know top top three or five whatever it is out of however many people were nominated i was sitting in that seat and three people away from being saying you're the winner james beard for emerging chef last year so it's like it changes people's perspective and perceived perception is what I like to say of who you are, what you are. And then it even increases the pressure and that even goes back into the imposter syndrome, what mm. we start off with and the mental health part of things that, that you place on yourself, not just from the guest or even just the responsibility of living up to things yeah. for your staff. That's and another, your owners. yeah, that's another big reason why I, I stick away from social media. Cause I don't want to yeah. compare myself to others. Yeah. And, and I, I, I'm there because that point in saying that is because of to have the presence because, you know, my goal is like to own my own. Yeah. You know, that was like, going to be a follow up question. What's your goal? Where's, Where's Chef Cleo headed? What, what's your what's your plan? How's well, it going to happen? If you would ask me, what has it been? Almost six, seven? No, it's been almost eight months now since I left Asheville and Benning. Um, if you would have told me I would have been working for someone and not have an investor on that road to an immediate future to be opening up my own space, I probably would have cursed you from here to hell. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously... Big Fella had different plans, and yeah. I wasn't on the, in on that plan. So, but your now, time's coming, my friend. But now I'm trying to get in on that plan. Yeah. And when you're, uh, <laughs> so, you know, you're, when your name, your brand is huge. Don't forget the little guy, because I'm coming back after you, man. I want to yeah. get you back on the show. Well, I'm always open. Story. Me yeah, and Aquino's actually working on trying to get a project open together. Nice. So, so um, hopefully, you know, we come across the right people to to. Um, you know, get this, get our project. Well, we're going to give you an opportunity to share your, your contact information before we say goodbye. Maybe I would love it if it came through this, this, this vertical. If somebody's listening so, to this, man. That would be magnificent. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> All right. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Wow. <laughs> I think you've said it a bunch of times already, but I'm curious. Something I picked up on. Um, I show up. Yes, that's what I was thinking, dude. You uh, show up. Literally, those are the two words that were in my mind. It's half the battle. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? Communication. What's one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? Do you care? And how do you know they care? Showing up. Yeah. <laughs> How or what is your biggest challenge today? 
patience. How are you overcoming it? <laughs> it's funny. Um, meditate. Well, meditation and meditation and actually communicating. Yeah. What's that app? That's like Headspace. Yeah. Do you use Headspace? Yeah, I got Headspace. It's a great. It's a great app. If you calm, I got um, <laughs> I got them all. Uh, I use Headspace, and I I remember just hearing from people like you constantly telling me you need to like meditation helps, and I was afraid. I was like, how do you meditate? Like, where do you start? Yeah. And it's a great it's a great app that kind of breaks the ice because once you go through the motions, you don't need the app anymore because you understand it's just focusing on breathing. And yeah, that's that's. <clears throat> I mean, that's essentially how my therapist told me to start. She's like, yeah, use use Headspace. That way, you know, you can it can help you start practicing the habits, and you can do it. Anyway, because it's anywhere because it's on your phone. Yeah. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Consistency. What is one uncommon standard of service? This is maybe more of like a front of house thing or a way to go above and beyond. It could be back of house too. This hospitality that can be shown through the plate. Uh, what is one uncommon way, uh, sorry, one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Something to go above and beyond the guest expectation. Um, I try to not say no. Mm, big one. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner or chef? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot out there. Pick the first one that comes to mind. Um, I mean, for me, like it was, I mean, it's actually not even a, a book. Uh, relates to our industry, but it was, um, he's a psychologist, psychiatrist, um, Gabor, Gabor Mate. It's called the, the myth of normal. This one is more the myth rec- of normal that recently just came out. Um, and it just, it talks about a lot of your, yeah, the big takeaway. What is it? It talks a lot about your unrecognizable, traumas in life and how it affects your daily life and yeah Yeah. manifests and how to go about you know uncovering those and working off those and building them and creating them into strengths and not you know continuing to let them you know fester yeah what's one thing you feel restaurateurs do do well enough or often enough Open more restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> what is one th- one piece of technology you or, or one of the restaurants you've worked in and have recently uh, adopted that's had a huge impact on profitability, efficiency, anything along these lines? Are you leveraging th- technology in the kitchen here as Zach the Baker? Um, Maybe like inventory? I, mean, I would definitely say the, the culture tanks that, they, that we got. That culture helps. tanks? Yeah, they What's that? Ha- um, with the sourdough. Oh, I thought you were talking like business culture for a and, second. Uh, What's the culture tank? They're like these huge vats that, you know, Zach got like two of them they got from like Germany. Are they, is there a brand associated with their maker model? I don't know all of that. Detail. I'll try to find out. We're going to go through the kitchen again, right? Yeah. Maybe I, you can. Yeah, I can show you. Yeah, cool. And they're um, big tanks and. Hold put the right humidity. A, yeah, they got the right temperature. Put. You know, we put the right amount of water, flour, and all that, and it'll 
you know, create yeah. the culture. Instead of trying overnight. to create a space in a, in a room, putting it behind the oven or something like that to find the right temperature. Yeah. Interesting. Um, this is the last question. It's a doozy. Get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? It's, it's, it's going to be it's cheesy, but I, yeah, man, I mean, it's not cheesy, but it, it's just what I said in the beginning, like, you know, that the Ethiopian proverb solution lies in the salt and the spices. That's one. <laughs> oh, I, how many, I had to give three. Oh, three. <laughs> um, show up. <laughs> um, It's just food. Two. Food is a starting point. Beautiful. Number three. This has been a lot of fun, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time, making the time last minute. This was kind of a shotgun interview. Um, we're really happy. I mean, I'm really grateful, truly grateful. You, you, yeah, you carved this out for us. Thank you so much. Uh, so if we were inspired by your story, um, we maybe were uh, a restaurant. I'm surprised at some of the people who listen to the show. Sometimes I'll get these badass restaurant tours. I'm like, Hey, will you be a guest on my show? And they're like, yeah, I listen to your show all the time. So there's money out there, man. There could be an investor. <laughs> who knows? What's the best way to connect? If we're inspired by you and we want to give you, maybe we want to come work for you. Maybe we want to give you an opportunity. Um, well, I mean, there's always email. <laughs> um, my email is um, Chef Ophis, which is C-H-E-F-O-P-H-U-S at gmail.com. And then, um, you know, there's the, also just, you know, social media, Instagram, same as um, Chef Ophis, which is C-H-E-F-O-P-H-U-S. Beautiful. And then, you know. And this is episode 975. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 975. We'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as any tools to books, services, uh, links that were mentioned on today's show and, and how to connect with Chef Ophis over there or Chef Cleo. I say Ophis because your Instagram is Ophis. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Chef Ophis is fine. Yeah, what do you, what do you prefer? I'm curious. What, who, what do most people call you? Ophis or Cleo? All right, I'm going to go with Chef Ophis because it sounds cool. <laughs> there is no questioning yeah. my man you are unstoppable yeah thank Cheers. you for having me man. pleasure is mine cheers there is another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable special thanks to our guest today cleothis heffington chef cleothis heffington for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge sharing your story sharing your perspective getting vulnerable and being willing to talk about a tough conversation to uh, the conversation of race. And this is, you know, honestly speaking, I really enjoy speaking about the things we're not supposed to talk, talk about. Like that's my, that's the stuff that gets me excited. And I, I really like pushing the envelope and, uh, and learning and, and seeing different perspective. And if I'm being completely honest, I've always avoided a lot of sociopolitical uh, conversations uh, out of fear. A lot of times it's out of fear of saying the wrong thing or being misinterpreted. And I think that if we're going to move in the right direction together, we need to create a culture of of listening and hearing and being willing to share perspective and hear perspective. And we're not going to grow unless we talk. Uh, so thank you for being willing to do this, Chef, and uh, awesome perspective. 
uh, I feel better off after having this conversation with you. And if you're enjoying these conversations and you want more like them, please, please, please support this podcast. One way you can support the show. If you're not a big fan of the long format interviews, head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable. We have shorter versions of the show, 15, 20 minute long versions of the show highlights from each episode there waiting for you. We also have shorts, like little mini uh, like reels shorts that are uh, catching fire over there. Uh, Sam's doing a great job and you can also support the, our show by supporting our sponsors using our affiliate links, sharing this podcast with any restaurant professional, you know, who's aspiring to be a little bit greater. And uh, you can leave a review over in iTunes and Stitcher radio, wherever you're listening to this, we need those reviews. First of all, they help with the, the ranking of the show on those platforms. And secondly, I love the feedback. I love to know what it is you like about the show. And uh, if you have some constructive criticism, leave it as well. Just don't leave me a one-star review because of something stupid. Thank you in advance. And uh, we can't say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this show possible. Thank you to Jared Parisi from Sumadre Podcast for copying and editing. And thank you to Sam Hall from SavinSam.com for the videography and social. I'm so grateful for my team. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.